Make sure you check out our online store where we work with our graphic designer to create stunning garment and product designs that feature a wide variety of aircraft types such as British fighters, World War II aircraft, American bombers, Russian fighters and much more. You can pick your favourite designs and personalise any items within our Redbubble store that range from clothing right the way through to stationery. All of our designs feature our logo so you can show your support for the channel while getting a quality product. You can head to our website aircrewinterview.tv and click store or go to redbubble.com forward slash people forward slash AC interview. Thank you and enjoy. So Simon, you also flew the Merlin. What were your first thoughts of uh, this aircraft? Oh, it's a, a massive beast, overcomplicated, fragile, but uh, I loved it. It, it looked kind of cool for a helicopter as well. So, uh, you know, the, the Puma was a bit like a, I don't know, a fun old British sports car maybe, or a French old sports car, and the, and the Merlin was like a, you know, brand new BMW 3 Series estate with all the toys, you know. Uh, Schnuck pilots hate it, but it was a great aircraft. I, I liked it. Yeah. So, so what was the role of the Merlin in your time? It was, it was the same as the Puma, so trooping and stuff, but it, it had one extra role that, um, ironically, it never really conducted, which was uh, JPR, so that's Joint Personnel Recovery. It's a bit like CSAR, so uh, this squadron was equipped with, um, it had an RF regiment flight, um, they had a set of uh, air-to-air refuelling probes as well, um, which we, we never did. I know the, the test pilots at Boscombe did with, a, I think, an Italian Hercules. Uh, I did it in the simulator. It was easy in the simulator. I assume it's extremely difficult in real life. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's as close as I got. <laughs> so let's talk about how uh, the aircraft flew and its strengths and weaknesses. Yeah, um, so strengths and weaknesses are great avionics. So you know, as I said earlier, the, the Puma had you know pretty rubbish and effective autopilot. You know, um, the navigation equipment was fairly limited. Um, the Merlin had an absolutely amazing autopilot, which um, which saved people in places like Iraq and Bosnia. We, you could effectively do a, what's called a transition down. So say um, you know in Iraq, you'd occasionally get dust storms. And you know, you, you couldn't, you, there's nowhere else to go, you know, if you're in the middle of the desert. So you could effectively transition down to a point above the ground. There was a little hand controller in the door which the crewman could then use so that the Merlin would fly you into wind at, and bring you into, I think it was a 20 foot hover above the ground. And then the crewman could literally look out the door and using his he had a hand controller with limited authority. He could actually just move, maneuver you gently into a, you know, a suitable landing condition and you as the pilot would just push down on the, uh, the collective. So it, it, um, it had great, great avionics. Um, it was a bit overcomplicated. So it had three, you know, it's designed to sit in the hover over the sea and there's all sorts of, you know, thing, you know, weight restrictions. And, you know, if you lost an engine, you could still hover with two. So to fly troops around, it essentially was carrying an extra engine you didn't need, but it technically had four engines. So it had three main engines, three RTM, three two twos, and a, an APU as well to start. So. It had the most complicated starting process of any helicopter I've ever flown. It was ridiculous. Which I was actually surprised about being there on modern aircraft. <laughs> it's <is> unbelievable. <laughs> you, you would start the, you start the APU, which would then give you the bleed air to start engine one. So you'd start engine one in accessory drive, which means it's not turning the head. Then when you've got number one started, you've got enough bleed air to start number two and three. You'd start engine two and three with the head. So you'd start engine two and three, the head would turn. 
And then when you've done all that malarkey, uh, you can bring engine one into main. So basically the powered drive shaft would go forward and you'd have all three engines driving. This is, you know, when you first learn to fly it, this is about an hour of your life that's just gone, you know. <laughs> your instructor's lost the will to live. And uh, on many occasions, you, you had gone through all that and then you'd go to put number one into main and the crosshatch would stay crosshatched and it just hadn't powered in. So you'd shut the aircraft all the way down to, to, to a cold engine. You'd go and speak to the fantastic engineers. They'd come out with a big rod like an old, um, you know, crank handle for a, you know, a 1920s car. They'd jump on the top and they'd manually wind the uh, number one into main. And then you go, and uh, now it's about three hours of your life that's just gone. <laughs> <laughs> so would you say it was the right aircraft uh, to take over from the Puma? Um, well, it, it didn't take over. It kind of complemented yeah, it. Complimented. Um, yeah, yeah it, it was very, very good. I mean, I flew it operationally in Bosnia and Iraq, and... It actually worked very, very well uh, in theatre. I didn't fly in Afghanistan, but uh, you know, I believe it did a great job there as well. So it can't carry quite what a Chinook can. Uh, you know, if you ask a Chinook pilot what's, what, you know, what's the right answer, he'll always say two Chinooks. Um, Merlin's kind of subtly different, but it, it was great at what he did. You know, it was, it was a good aircraft. So what squadron were you based with? I started with 28 squadron, so I... Uh, I went through the conversion, which was um, very similar to the Puma one, um, although we did a uh, a slightly different European trainer this time. We ended up um, uh, going to uh, Lisbon. Uh, en route, we, <laughs> um, we were supposed to night stop in Madrid. I was leading uh, four, four Merlings to Madrid and there's a lot of high ground around Madrid and there's a lot of unforecast bad weather came in and we, we couldn't get around to the, um, the western side of Madrid. We tried going around to the north, couldn't do that. And I was navigating at this stage, I was starting to sweat. Um, so there's two two students up front our instructor was in the centre seat so he couldn't get anywhere near the controls and I looked on the map and I saw there was a motorway that took this is a Sunday afternoon by the way there was a motorway that took us all the way to the airport we were going and you know helicopters they, they go IFR which in the airline world is instrument flight rules mm -hmm. in the helicopter world I follow roads <laughs> so uh, you know I told the formation I said right you know we can't get over the high ground we'll follow this motorway uh, to the airport and it the cloud base has come down at this stage it was really limited visibility and uh, we start following this motorway and all the helicopters fit into line astern behind me and you know i'm thinking uh, well done well done si you've saved the day we, you know we'll be on the ground in in 20 minutes we'll be having a beer in the hotel you know you've, you've got around the bad weather so i'm following this motorway in the poor weather and then uh, the motorway basically disappears into a tunnel in the side of a mountain <laughs> so, so at this stage you know i have to i tell the other guy break right and we, we all break right all four of us and we're over the top of the outskirts of madrid on a sunday afternoon at i don't know about 50 foot 100 foot and I just, I said, you know, right, we've just got to go now. We can't get into Madrid. And um, I, I looked at my map and there was an airfield, um, Salamanca, that was, it was the only airfield we had enough fuel to get to because it was going to get, I thought it was going to get very embarrassing. We'd have the, the RAF's newest support helicopter all stuck in a field somewhere in Spain, <laughs> run out of fuel, you know, oh, disaster. <laughs> and we, we spoke to Salamanca and ironically, they were the only military airfield in Spain that was open 24 hours for NATO aircraft and they happily took us all in, refueled us and we went our way to Lisbon. So that was, that was the highlight of my conversion flight was uh, just pulling that one out of the bag by pure fluke. <laughs> <laughs> so do you have any mem uh, more memorable stories from flying the Merlin? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, I really enjoyed flying the Merlin. Uh, we, uh, the squadron first went to Bosnia, um, so we're based at um, Banyaluka Metal Factory. It wasn't... Um, you know, it, it wasn't the, the most exciting fly per se. There's some interesting, um, you know, mountain flying. Uh, we did a lot of weapon collection, etc. But um, I took, um, there's a model, American model called Caprice, who um, came out, did a, a, a tour around, and uh, we took her flying one day. 
uh, we took her flying in a magician and it was it was quite funny whenever we took around all these patrol bases and what was really funny to me was we, we'd land on the patrol base and uh, we took the aircraft down and all the troops would come rushing over and you know dancing a woman in three months and they would cluster around caprice and they'd talk to her and the guy would be just doing a couple of magic tricks in the background and people would just filter away from the caprice and this magician guy is absolutely brilliant it's like a david blaine type chat and they couldn't get enough of him and i remember caprice you'd be there and every time it was the same five minutes definitely be ignoring her all these sex staff squaddies would be kind of <laughs> clustering around this bloke and she'd be standing there bored out of the school so we'd talk to her uh, but we flew into this base called sipavo and um I wasn't flying. Um, there's a friend of mine called Phil, who's now a pilot in the Canadian Air Force. And the Merlin had a really strong downwash. Um, if you look at the rotor blades, they've got kind of paddles at the end and they produce a really concentrated, like a, a donut ring effect. And also it's a very heavy helicopter as well, sort of 15 tonnes. Um, so it produces, you know, 400 miles an hour of 15 tonnes worth of downwash. It's uh, horrific. And when, flew, uh, when Phil flew into the patrol base, he flew over um this house and there was a little seedy alley outside every base and that was where guys sold the hooky dvds and you know in air crew we were always up for a bargain so we'd always go out and buy a few hooky dvds and cds and everything as well uh, so phil basically flew in flew quite close to this house in the seedy alley uh, you know caprice and the magician guy went off to do their magic tricks and their you know meet and greet and i just thought hey, i'll go out and buy a few a few music cds so i went out the main gate and um, it's a crowd of very angry people there and I, I had second thoughts about going out at this stage and then one of the guards came out to me and goes, are you the pilot? And I said, kind of, you know, I thought, I'm not going to argue about being co-pilot or pilot. And he said, they want to speak to you. And I go, okay. So I went over to them, you know, made sure I had an escape behind me. And they're basically mainly were ex-Serbian soldiers. And when, we, when Phil had been flying, he flew in and blew over most of their CD shacks. Oh, so no. they were not happy at all. <laughs> awesome. So I had to do a lot of apologising on their behalf. And obviously I didn't go and buy any dodgy CDs at that stage because I thought I'd get lynched. Yeah, probably <laughs> wise right there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, we took, we took it to um, Iraq after that. That was, that was very different. That was a very different place to go. Um, you got shot at pretty much every time you went flying. It was it was just simply incredible. I mean, you generally only saw it at, at night time, and you know I still remember very clearly that the first time that um, I was shot at, I was flying with this um, really nice um, new pilot called Ryan. He's now a wing commander. I was um, you know second tourist, experienced pilot, two thousand hours, a qualified helicopter tactics instructor. You know, thought I knew it all. Clearly, I didn't. <laughs> we were we were flying over Bazar at um, just under three thousand feet. I remember it was dark on the ground, so it was you know it's early morning, like half past five or something. But the sky was lightning, and I assumed nobody would see us. And uh, and obviously we stuck out like a sore thumb against the, the sky. But I thought we're so high, nobody would would shoot at us. And we were flying along, just having a nice chat. And suddenly these, this razor, it looked like a red hot laser beam, just shot in front of the aircraft. And I was just completely stunned. And I, I just I didn't know what to do, and I remember Ryan, you know, this brand new brand new co-pilot, said, uh, "Are we meant to like manoeuvre now or avoid this?" And I went, "Yes, you know." <laughs> at that stage, you know, he kind of totally shot me out of my, um, you know, my, my my state. But it was just such a surprise that anybody would be able to see us that high and to get so close to us. Yeah. And obviously, the, the problem with the tracer, of course, is, you know, that generally it's not one in one. You've not got one, you know, tracer per bullet. There might be one round of tracer, and there's five other bullets that are coming just behind it. So. Uh, yeah, so generally you only saw it at, at night time. Um, probably the the most disturbing incident I had over there was I, I didn't see a thing that happened. So we were in um, a place called As-Samawa, which is up in the northwest of Iraq. And we were asked to do a, a photo 
reconnaissance task and they wanted us to go um, quite low but there's a certain minimum height that you know we, we say you shouldn't go below it's like the main threat band for, for small arms and we stayed above that and we're flying around the middle of this town for about an hour and a half while this guy took photos and uh, never saw a thing the whole time and uh, we're the only aircraft in the area and next day when I got back to uh, to Basra I was re you read the intelligence reports and I read this intelligence report for Asamara for the day before and it said a Merlin was flying around the town for an hour and a half and there were I think it was 150 gunmen in cars following it Nowhere. shooting at it and it absolutely sent shiver down my spine I thought you hadn't a clue we, we literally had no clue because it was daytime as well we yeah. never saw a thing you know I mean it, and that was the that was the scary thing for me was you know we had no idea this was happening um, we were also uh, we engaged at a few times by uh, missiles so we had a uh, heat-seeking missile fired at us one night uh, that was that was just incredibly quick how, how quickly it was over so I was um, flying with a friend of mine called Luce around the southern edge of Basra and we were doing a, a night low-level flight 150 foot and um, the crewman just screamed. He screamed, and at that stage, the the alarms went off. We had some um, internal alarms in the aircraft with um, which detected heat-seeking missiles. The flares all ejected, and you know you, you try and find out what's going on because you don't know where the threat is. I said, "What's happened?" He said, "It's just missed us." And, was, <laughs> and at that stage, we you know I knew by now I needed to move the helicopter, so we we got as far away as we could. And uh, I asked him what had happened, and he said, "Basically, a missile just appeared and shot behind the aircraft. Obviously, the flares worked. It's an automatic flare re release, but it, it was over." instantaneously it was over like that so you know it just and this the the, 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 the this was uh, January January 2006 and in May 2006 I was um, I was getting changed at a wedding it was my sister-in-law's wedding and I, I saw in the news that an, an aircraft had been shot down in in Basra and uh, it was actually my boss at the time John Coxon um, it was a Lynx that had been shot down there was John Coxon a friend Sarah Jane Mulverhill there were five of them killed and they were shot down by a heat-seeking missile and it was the same area where we were uh, and they, they used to work in teams and you know it kind of I don't know whether it's the same team that shot at us that got him yeah. or not but it was it, it, again shivers down my spine that that was you know probably the same people and they got lucky lucky with him and unlucky with me Crazy. So, yeah um, some incredible stories <laughs> yeah it was it was um it was a funny place I mean we we spent um a lot of time in a place called Alamara, which was an old uh, Republican um, rep uh, Iraqi Republican army base, and it had the dubious pleasure of having the cookhouse built above um, a sewer, a sewer or something. So you would you would go into it, and it was just the most revolting smell you could ever smell in your life. The uh, you know you had portaloos there, which you can imagine a portaloo in 35 degree heat it was it was ridiculously unpleasant. But um, I remember the first time I landed in Alamara, uh, the Seekings were based there at the time as well. And we landed on the pad behind the Seeking. And um, all the, the aircraft had HESCO around them, if you, if you know what that is, the, the big containers that are filled with gravel to stop blast fragmentation and things. And basically it was a rocket stuck in one of those <laughs> containers because they, they were rocked in the base most nights. And yeah. um, I'd never experienced it before. I mean, the first night we were there, the ground crew were working there on the top of the Merlin, which is I don't know, 20 foot up in the air and people started firing at them from outside the base and then I think it was two nights later I, I was in my um, mosquito net and I've always had a, a phobia with mosquitoes I absolutely hate them drive me mad and um, I had this mosquito net full of holes and I heard this zit, zit, like that and I got my newspaper out and I was trying to smack the mosquito and um, then the mortar alarms went off and it obviously wasn't a mosquito it was these rockets that were being fired at the base and they'd just missed our hardened uh, accommodation we were staying in so 
yeah, that was <laughs> another close call. But they obviously, because they're going so fast, they uh, I think they landed about two miles away. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> even though they probably came within 10 or 20 feet of our, our base. But uh, yeah, it was an interesting place to, to fly around. Wow, so, I can imagine. Mm. But yeah, so Simon, how many hours uh, did you get on the Merlin? Not that many, really. So I only flew it from 2002 to 2006. I did, I did four years, just about. So I got, I got 600 hours on it, which isn't a lot. You know, um, just about my first year flying offshore, I got about 550 hours, something like that, 600. Wow. So, um, yeah, it's because I mainly did a trials role. So, we, we you know, we did, um, we tested defensive aids on the aircraft and all sorts of other things. So, you know, generally speaking, I was an office warrior and, you know, occasionally I got let out of the office to go to Iraq <laughs> or Bosnia or something like that. So what did you do after the RAF? Yeah, I, um, I spent most of my RAF career um, swearing blind that I was never going to wear a rubber suit and fly over the sea because any helicopter pilot will know, it, you know, you fly over the sea, you've got a bit, big rubber suit on and, uh, you know, it's hot and sweaty and, you know, everybody wants to be an airline pilot, a nice cream shirt, you know, uh, hotels. So anyway, I swore blind I'd never do the North Sea and um, I started looking into it before I left the Air Force and, um, you know, friends who were doing it and they, they really enjoyed it. So, yeah, 2013, I, I got a job. Um, flying out of the Shetlands and I, I was there for seven years flying oil and gas so um, flying people out to all rigs in the East Shetland Basin out to the Atlantic onto boats um, it's a really really enjoyable um, job um, the sea is, is never less than beautiful you know and it's it's incredibly demanding and challenging job as well I didn't think it would be but um, you know often you fly into fuel limits um, you see some amazing sights as well, flying over, you know, families of humpback whales. Just, you oh, know, no way. Yeah, looking down <laughs> wow. the sea in like seven or eight humpback whales, which are bloody ginormous. And just you're at sit, work. Uh, yeah, look, you know, <laughs> and you see them or, or, you know, once I was, I was sitting on a, an oar rig while the, um, we just went to get the passengers and I looked down and this black shape just came out of the water underneath and went back down again. I think it was a killer whale, but, you know, um, you'd, you'd see killer whales jumping out of the water. Um, so it was it, it's just the most beautiful place to work. Um, so I did that for uh, seven years. Um, Covid hit and I kind of lost my job, but I ended up getting another job with my company. And basically I'm now the, the safety guy, you know, the guy in the fluorescent jacket with the clipboard and the, the hard hat. So uh, <laughs> I, I still fly, um, but I do kind of safety reporting now. I do a lot of working from home as well. So it's kind of worked out OK. I quite enjoy that. So, uh, That's great. you know, after a while you do get um, you know, fl flying's fun, but after all, you think, yeah, you know, I want to do a job where I can have a fresh cup of coffee every yeah, 10 exactly. minutes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, do you have any hobbies? Um, yeah, I kind of play at being a farmer in our field, but um, my, my main hobby, and it's kind of up there with train spotting, I think most people agree, is I, um, I collect logbooks for pilots. So, uh, a few years back in the Shetlands, I, uh, one of our pilots was leaving, and he said, he asked me to come over to his house, and he, he said, look, I'm, you know, I'm leaving, I'm going to throw these in the bin, do you want them? And... I said, what are they? And he showed me these two um, uh, threadbare old pilot's logbooks. And they were to a World War II RAF pilot who'd been um, killed. And he, he got his wings the same base I did. He flew out of missions out of Aldergrove, out of Aberdeen, out of the Shetlands where I flew out of. Uh, all over you know Europe etc and you know I started researching them and 
Actually, I, I found his um, his son recently, who's uh, 80 and had never seen his logbooks. I gave them back, and actually last week I got a, a model of his plane sent through the post to me. But um, oh I, I very geekily started collecting them. I've got everything from an ME262 pilot to a you know a Stuka, a Typhoon pilot's logbooks, and I just research those, and you know it keep, keeps me happy and keeps me out of trouble, as my wife would say. So. <laughs> Always good, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> <laughs> Favorite aircraft you've flown? Um, I, th- I think probably the one I fly now, the S92. Just I, I like good solid uh, American aircraft, and it it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. It's just you know it's got a titanium rotor head. It's just solid. <laughs> I like it. It looks good as well. Nice. Is there an aircraft you wish you could have flown in your military career that, uh, career that you didn't? Um, yeah, I've, I've o- there's only one, um, which was the Harrier. Um, reason. <laughs> I held for a little while a Harrier squadron and uh, there was never any flights and uh, I, I was getting quite bored holding so I basically went and bought myself a motorbike, a ZX6R Ninja. And as you do. As you do. I took the <laughs> afternoon off to go and buy the motorbike and uh, I saw one of my friends in the, the officer's mess that evening and he said, where were you mate? And I went, I just went to buy my motorbike and he went, they were looking for you and he said, they, there was a two ship trip where, and he said, I did it, but they were looking for you, it was your turn. I went, what? And he said, yeah, we went and fired rockets and dropped bombs. And, oh. And uh, yeah, and about about two days after that, I got streamed helicopters, and I thought, well, I'd, I'd rather hang around with a uh, Harrier force. I'll go to Boscombe Down, and I went there and sort of flew helicopters. So yeah. that was the one little regret I've got is I, I just missed out on flying a Harrier, which would have been kind of fun. But you can look at the bike the same way. Um, bike was ace. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how many hours do you have flying to date? Oh, I don't know. I mean, six and a half thousand, maybe. I, I got. Maybe I've got 3,200 in the military, so I managed to stay flying my whole career, even though I did a few kind of desky type jobs. I was still flying, uh, you know, things like air cadets, and I flew grub tutors at weekends and things. Um, and then I got about 3,000 hours in the offshore world, which which isn't a lot. You can you can do 800 hours a year, but I, I spent about two years as a, a kind of line pilot, and then I became a chief pilot and from there to a safety guy so I kind of moved out of the cockpit into more a management role and then uh, the, the safety one so yeah it's about six and a half thousand I've got not bad <laughs> <laughs> so can we find you online anywhere um I, you know no, I'm on Twitter but uh, you know I, I don't post very much you know I'd like to stay out of trouble to be honest <laughs> very wise and we have a question from one of our patrons uh, are you happy to answer yeah, this yeah of course yeah. so this is from I guess this is not his real name Gundog4314 it's unusual it's his real name <laughs> <laughs> but uh, why do aeroplane prop uh, or jet fly from the left but um, helicopters fly on the right oh no this is horrible I've read this actually it's a really good question I, th- I think I think it comes from in the old days and I'm probably wrong I think most helicopters only had the one collective in the middle right. and I think it was, they found it was easier to sit in the right hand seat with your right hand on the cyclic because that's the main one that you, you do the cows get bigger cows get smaller with and then have your left hand on the collective I th- obviously if you were sitting in the left you'd be flying with your cyclic with your left hand and having the, the right on the collective I think that's why I might be wrong there'll be I, someone out there I'll correct as if oh, I have no, there'll, there'll be all sorts of people <laughs> sort of scribbling furious answers about how rubbish I have yeah I'll, I'll be, send them to Simon not yeah. me <laughs> well Simon thank you very much for coming on the show and sharing a bit of your story oh thanks so much